Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 304, and today's guest is Brett Martin, co-founder of Kumo Space and general partner at Charge Ventures. Kumo Space is a venture-backed virtual office space platform that provides immersive and interactive virtual spaces for hosting team meetings and social gatherings. Charge Ventures is a venture capital firm based in New York that invests in pre-seed and seed early stage tech ventures. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like the details on Brett's advice around raising capital, which is a process that he calls FOMO fundraising, Brett's background story, which includes a variety of pursuits across investment banking, sailing, vice media, starting a band, being a Fulbright scholar, and how he ultimately ended up in the tech industry as an investor. The story of Sonar Media, the first ambient social networking company, and lots of lessons learned from building this company all the details about Kumo Space and how their platform is solving the challenges of remote work, collaboration, and culture. Brett's experience as an investor with Charge Ventures, plus the details on what they are targeting for investments. The difference between figuring out product market fit for enterprise versus consumer products, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. Did you hear that VentureFizz launched a spinoff site a few months ago called Just Product Management Jobs? The title of the website says it all. So if you are a product manager and you're looking for your next opportunity, check out JustProductManagementJobs.com and you'll find over 100 PM specific jobs at all levels of experience. Oh, and if you're hiring product managers, make sure you add your jobs there. A listing is only $199, which is such a deal for such a highly curated audience. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Brett. Brett, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, absolute pleasure to be here, Keith. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm excited to talk to you because we had so much to cover. Um, you know, you're a serial entrepreneur, you're an investor, so there's a ton to talk about. Um, but one of the things I do want to kind of start talking about, and it's definitely a very, you know, it's always a thing that entrepreneurs are thinking about is raising the next round of capital. But obviously with the market the way it is right now, it's a little bit challenging. Um, so you recently posted some, you know, like a like a process called FOMO fundraising on on LinkedIn that I thought it'd be great to break that down for any entrepreneurs that are out there and, you know, trying to get investors to, to really lean in and hopefully, you know, take that next step with a term sheet and an, an investment. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, obviously the best thing you can do for your fundraising is to build a really quality business with lots of revenue and high profits and, you know, a great management team. I mean, that that's, that's going to make any sort of fundraising easy, but that even that said, even if you have a good business, you can screw up fundraising and, um, you know, I, I call it FOMO fundraising. It's, it's it's sort of a joke, but but the idea is that you know investors sadly are a lot of uh, pack animals, and they care a lot about social signal. And and you know, if you're an investor, you make a bad deal, that's okay. You can only lose one time your money, but <clears throat> if you miss a good one, you might miss fifty x your money, right? So so the worst thing for an investor is missing out on a, on a really good deal. And so you know that you have to uh, show people that they are missing out on a really good deal if they're not investing in you. And so um, FOMO fundraising is, in short, it's really, a, it's, you know, it's a three-step process, which is um, you, you know, when you first meet people, first impression, you get a warm intro, you, um, you know, you essentially tell them who you are and what you're doing and kind of what, what, your, what your vision is, right? And then your uh, second meeting, you, um, 
you know, you, uh, you have your update and you show the investor that you did what you said you were going to do. So, you know, that you've now given them two uh, dot, you've connected two dots, right? But, but you need three to make a trend. But, but the secret is that on the, the third interaction, and this is, you know, right before you're actually getting ready to ask for money, note that you haven't asked for any money yet. Um, on your third interaction, you actually, uh, you manufacture some catalyst. So whether that could be, you know, leaking something to them via back channel, via, you know, one of their other portfolio companies, or you create some press that you know that they're going to see, or you, um, you know, happen to be in town, you know, this, this week to catch up for coffee, or you bump into them at a uh, conference uh, conveniently. Right. But like, uh, you know, you, you make it so that they hear about how great you're doing and, you know, how, you know, that's why press release is great. You know, oh, we just uh, signed this huge customer, right? And then they, in their head, they now have three dots, which is a trend, which, you know, and they see that you did what you said you're going to do and that things are taking off without them. And then they, you know, at this point, reach out to you and say, oh, let's have a, you know, can we have a talk? I'd love to talk to you about investing in your company, which is obviously a much stronger position from which to start a negotiation if someone is coming, you know, to you and asking for the meeting rather than you begging them for it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a process and it's, it's like sales, right? It's like dating. It's, you know, you're going to be in this relationship for hopefully a very long time. So make sure you choose carefully, but it is a process that hopefully you get people excited and want to take that next step in making that investment. Yeah. And the other sort of, I think just fundraising tip that I, I beat everyone over the head with is that it's not about convincing skeptics. It's about finding believers. And so, you know, I think I see a lot of early entrepreneurs, they'll try to overwhelm you with information or rebuttals, or, you know, if someone has said they don't, they're not, they're not interested in no one of us, the best thing you can do for everyone is just to move on quickly and, and and actually find that person that that believes. And oftentimes it's finding investors, you know, people love to feel validated by what they see. And so you actually want to find the investor that had the same idea as you or a similar idea. And when you find that person, you know, they're already looking for you, right? So, and you'll, you'll feel the difference. You know, when you find the investor that's looking for what you're building, it's going to, you're going to have instant connection. You're not going to have to convince them of anything other than that you're the person to bring this thing over the finish line. Yeah, that's great. Great advice. All right. So let's rewind the clock. So where'd you grow up? What were you like as a child? Were you always entrepreneurial? Yeah, yeah. I'm from, um, we were just talking about, we're, I'm from Ocean City, Maryland, which is a small uh, mid-Atlantic uh, beach resort town. And um, I, yeah, it was, you know, I think it, all the people who own, all the locals, it's a small town, there's only 7,000 people, but <clears throat> half a million people kind of in and out every week. And so all the locals actually are small business owners. You know, they own anything from hotels to restaurants to, be, you know, to beach stands to parasailing stands. And so I think entrepreneurism is, is very much like in the DNA of the people that, that live there. My dad was always kind of doing his own things. And um, yeah, you know, I sold seashells in the sea, seashore till I was, uh, you know, eight or nine. That was my first uh, first foray into uh, own business. All right. So, how did you get your career started? Uh, you know, from Ocean City, Maryland, uh, down by the beach, I went to Dartmouth, studied economics and psychology, and then uh, right out, didn't really know what I was going to do, but uh, 
went down to New York and joined an investment bank called Thomas Weisel Partners, actually a San Francisco-based bank full of entrepreneurs. They're funding all the entrepreneurs during the dot-com bust. Um, that was really the, my only two years working in an actual job. I've been either building or investing uh, the rest of my career. And so I went and lived on a sailboat for a year, sailed 6,000 miles, saw some pirates and water spouts, uh, came back from that, started a band, uh, launched Vice Media in, in New York City, um, moved from there, did a Fulbright uh, scholarship in, in Milan, where I met uh, Thanos Papadimitri, who was my Fulbright advisor, who would later become my partner at Charge Ventures. And then I, I used the Fulbright to kind of pivot into entrepreneurship. I uh, interviewed on Skype at the time, you know, 100 VCs and uh, entrepreneur founders of publicly traded companies. And that was kind of my, my pivot into tech. And so shortly thereafter, I came back, had a lost year, and then moved down to Austin with, you know, this my smartest buddy from college and uh, had a failed coding experiment, I would call it. But that basically got me in the game, came from there, moved back to New York and uh, joined a small venture capital fund called App Fund. That was uh, at that time the iPad had just been announced and it was, uh, you know, focused on investing in, in tablet tablet based technologies. And so that was how I got my start. And, um, you know, basically while I was at App Fund. Uh, they decided, well, we really want to incubate companies. And so I said, okay, well, that's good because I was wanted to, I was going to leave and quit and start my company anyway. I might as well do it here. And so that's actually how I got started with Sonar. It's, so Sonar Media, like, so let's, let's talk in detail about that. Cause it, that, that had some legs. Like I watched your, uh, your pitch at TechCrunch Disrupt New York in front of some, just a great panel of judges. I was like impressed the, uh, you know, the, the feedback that you're getting for the idea and obviously had some legs after entrepreneurship is a form of self-expression and so entrepreneurship is bringing you know trying to bring something about yourself into the world and try to you know kind of make the world in, in your vision and so i think sonar for me was about you know how do you make the world your home how do you make the world how do you make yourself feel comfortable around and connected to the people around you wherever you are and so the idea was to leverage, you know, the iPhone and proximity and all the existing social networks and bring that data down into your pocket and show you how you connected to people around you in a way that made you feel like you could just start a conversation with anyone near you, which I think, you know, again, was a reflection of like kind of where I grew up in a small town that had lots of tourists. So we were always kind of like felt very close, but also felt like, you know, you could connect with strangers. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, I don't know, it was probably at least 10, you know, six, seven, 10, maybe 30 years too early, <laughs> but, you know, I, I think, I think it was a great lesson. We had a hot moment, you know, we had billions of users and back then, you know, few million users is like 50, hundred million users now, right? The, you know, the internet was literally a tenth as big. Um, and so, you know, I learned a lot. I mean, learned a lot about partnerships, uh, learned about, cut, you know, customer acquisition, learned a lot about why people, you know, what's a good reason to do a startup, what's not. Um, you know, I think I jokingly say that the postmortem I wrote uh, got as much traction as the startup did. Um, it's not it's not actually true, but you know, it it, it made it made the rounds and felt like it wasn't a complete waste. Well, I, I can see why because I read through it and it was just man, you just read through it and you just you put it all out there. I mean, you read it and you had so much empathy of what you went through, yet as a, an entrepreneur, you can relate to a lot of it too, right? Because you talk about 
you know, listening to your users, false positives, listening to your users, false negatives, right? So there's just so much that you learn from that experience that you shared, which I think, um, you know, that's, that's hard for entrepreneurs to do. Well, if you're not, I mean, the thing is in entrepreneurship, you make a lot of mistakes. So if you're not learning from your mistakes, you're, you're in trouble <laughs> or you're missing a great opportunity at least. So I think the least you could do, you know, as an entrepreneur, if something's not work is, you know, take the time to put your, write down, you know, what you learn and share with everyone else. Uh, well, listening to your, listening to your user was definitely something that, you know, I, I could see that being a big piece that uh, entrepreneurs can relate to. But the other one that I thought was really interesting was um, identify your top three priorities, throw away number two and three. <laughs> so just focus, focus, focus on number one. Yeah. I mean, they say, you know, Steve Jobs, they credit him with the saying focus is saying no to a thousand good ideas. Um, and it's, it's hard. You have limited resources. You only get a few shots on goal. And so you got to really, uh, you know, make each one, make each one count. And uh, as someone with a lot of interest, as you've uh, <laughs> pulled out of me already, that, that that is challenging. And that's, you know, a part why I work with, um, you know, my co-founder at Kumo Space, Yang Mao, you know, we've worked on three companies together and he, you know, he's my better half when it comes to focus for sure. He, you know, he's an engineer. He is, you know, loves simplicity and, you know, it kind of lets me, you know, be freeform and generative and he can slim it down and turn it, you know, into, into reality, which is always just great having a, a, a better half like that. All right, well, that's a perfect segue. So let's talk about one of the things you're up to these days. So Kumo Space, what, what is Kumo Space all about? Yeah, I mean, you know, Kumo Space is um, a virtual office for, you know, a remote and hybrid teams uh, to basically show up and work at together every day. So, um, you know, if your team is distributed in a bunch of different offices or, you know, you have some people in the office today and some others from working from home, as most hybrid teams experience, you know, you need one place where everyone can kind of show up and see who's around and see who's, see who's available and, you know, tap someone on the shoulder and get a quick answer and, you know, have kind of the spontaneous interactions um, that, you know, create company culture and, um, you know, with everyone in different places, the easiest way to do that is online. And so, you know, Kumo Space is a virtual place for teams to have all of those interactions. And um, yeah, we, you know, Yang and I started that during the pandemic and it's been a really fun ride ever since. Yeah, so what, like, what are you seeing in terms of the trends? Like, is this still a, uh, you know, companies, you know, there's remote first companies, then there's, um, you know, companies that are like hybrid, then there's some companies that are like, we're going to be in person again, and this is just the trend and, and what's going to happen. So like, there's a big market, obviously, there's lots of companies out there that are thinking in different ways. So, so, so what are you seeing out there? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, remote work was a growing trend before the pandemic. It's still a growing trend after the pandemic, it, it kind of had a temporary, I'd say, you know, peak, like a lot of new things did during the pandemic. It's since settled back down, but it's actually, you know, kind of stable um, and now growing again, right? I actually just saw some research that, you know, you're going to hire faster and, uh, you know, you can hire you hire remote people. I saw some other research today that said, um, if you look at the time split on a typical weekday, 
you know, if you're fully in person or fully remote, you spend about 76, 77% of your time doing IC work. But if you're hybrid, you spend less, less than 50% of your time doing IC individual con con contributor work. And you spend more than 50% of your time in meetings. And um, so, you know, I think it's funny. Everyone said we were more productive when we were working remote, which I think is true. Um, now that said, I think, you know, there's obviously some problems with everyone working in silos and working by themselves and not being connected. And, you know, that's a lot of the reasons why we built a virtual office. I think it was an easier choice for a lot of people to just drag people back to the office and learn better management practices. But I think long-term, you know, we'll probably settle in some sort of hybrid configuration because there is value in face-to-face, -face, uh, you know, interactions. But I think it's kind of a flipped model, right? Sort of like the flipped classroom. You know, before it used to be lecture all day, homework all night. Now they, you watch lectures at night and then you do work in class where the teacher can help you work through specific problems. I tend to think of the office that way. It used to be work, you know, in your office all day by yourself and then maybe have a happy hour afterward. Now I think it's like, hey, you do your, your IC work at home, right? And then you come into the office for special meetings uh, you know, on you know, office is the new on on site is the new off site, um, and you know, or in our case, in Kumo space, you know, we have uh, two big off sites a, a year where we get the whole team together. So, is this uh, like I see a key issue out there? Just you know, with VentureFizz, we're helping companies with hiring and employment branding, and a lot of feedback I hear is, um, you know, companies that are hybrid, or you know, because re remote. Anywhere is definitely, you know, that's an obvious problem, but it's the hybrid companies where you have some people in the office, some people not. So what are we missing when I'm in the office? Like, does this help solve that of the times you're not in the office, you're still feeling connected through the platform? Yeah. So we call that, um, you know, remote worker equity, right? Is this idea that historically being a remote worker when everyone else was in the office was like being a second class citizen, right? You weren't getting the plum jobs, you know, you weren't getting promoted, you weren't getting mentorship, you weren't getting FaceTime with your, with your boss. Right. And uh, you know, it, that disproportionately affects, you know, disadvantaged groups. It, it affects uh, women, it affects, uh, you know, mothers, it affects, uh, fathers, it affects, you know, uh, people of color. And so, you know, remote work was this really amazing equalizer where all of, sudden, all of a sudden everyone was on the same plane. You know, now that we go back to hybrid, we actually have the same problem, but it's now it's exacerbated, right? Because you have more, even more people that are not in the office at any given time. Um, and so one of the big things we think a virtual office facilitates is equity for remote workers, giving them that mentorship, giving them that exposure. You know, you we think of FaceTime always as this negative thing. It's like, oh, my boss is making me show up. But there's good FaceTime too, right? There's like, oh, I'm getting the looks. I'm getting the mentorship. I'm getting, you know, the time, the quality time with my peers and my my bosses and my mentors that's going to help me grow. And, you know, everyone who's run a um, remote or distributed team talks about how hard it is with young people right, to give them the proper proper training. And, you know, that's in part 
the young person needs it, but it's a part of the boss being available, right? And so when you're like a boss and you're just on Zoom all day and, you know, you're in calls and you're not available, then that doesn't really, it's not fair to your younger workers. Um, and so, you know, Kumo space and virtual offices generally, it's just a way of solving that problem, just making yourself available for your team. Like actually right now when I'm in Zoom, I'm like hyper cognizant that I'm not in the office with my team. All right. So how does it work? Because I mean, you go to your website, there's a great, you know, demo, but you know, for the people listening, how does Kumo Space work? So um, it's really simple. It's a, you know, a tool that you turn on in the morning and you turn off at night when you leave. So it's just like an office, you know, our team starts trickling in, you know, opening up Kumo Space between 9 and 10 a.m. Um, it's, you know, it's a basically two-dimensional view of your office. We've got offices, we've got conference rooms, we've got kind of game areas with, you know, with games. Uh, you can close the door and have a private and have a private meeting. You can only hear the people near you. You can't hear people across the office, but you could just with a couple taps, go over and tap them on the shoulder and get an answer. If you see that someone's screen, you know, having a presentation, but they're doing it out in the open, you know, with the open door, you can see their presentation, right? And so, you know, your office feels alive. Like one of the easiest ways of selling Kumo space is to get people into our office because they're, you know, their eyes light up and they say, oh, wow, like I can see your whole team. I can see things are going on. I get that buzz. I get that feeling that work is being done that I'm not alone sitting at my computer, you know, in my case, in a hotel room right now, right? Like I feel the other 20, 25 people there working up for a common purpose. And that's pretty motivating. So you announced your Series A last year, 21 million, uh, led by Lightspeed. So what's what's the current state of the state of the company, like number of employees or whatever, you know, information you can share? Yeah, I mean, we're really lucky Kumo Space to just have an amazing group of investors. You know, we raised our seed from, uh, Ed and Elliot at Bold Start, longtime friends of mine, you know, some of the best infrastructure investors in, in New York City, um, you know, true founder believers. And and um, then, you know, we have this opportunity to work with Paul Murphy at Lightspeed, you know, Paul's another old OG New York tech guy, um, you know, built dots. Uh, he's, a, you know, he's an entrepreneur as well. And so, you know, we wanted to work with entrepreneurs. Um, and yeah, it's just given us amazing you know, flexibility to really build out. I mean, this is software that people are spending six, seven, eight hours a day in. And so you can imagine, you know, there's a lot of demands on that software. And so, you know, we're fortunate to have the capital to to build something really great. And, um, you know, just been building out features. And now, you know, over the past year, really going to market and, you know, signing up, uh, you know, 100, over 100 customers a month at this point, uh, bringing their whole, you know, teams on, bringing on big clients, you know, like, NASA and NASA and Google government, you know, government of uh, Canada, a bunch of but big con, you know, contact center folks. Um, yeah, just feeling really, you know, all, a bunch of the big four consultancies, uh, you know, are, are working with us, um, KPMG. And so, you know, it's just, it you know, you have a vision and it just takes years to get there. But I feel like, you know, every day that it, it gets better, it gets to be a better experience where our team learns and, um, yeah, we're just trying to turn that vision into reality. You know, the, the core of the vision is that we don't have to choose between, you know, in-person and, uh, you know, 
doing quality work, but, you know, not having a quality life, having too much commute, not getting to see your kids or remote, but being isolated and not having connection and not being able to build something valuable. You know, at Kumo Space, we just think there's a third way where you can get great work done, really collaborate, really understand and connect with your teammates and live the life you want. And, you know, whether that's traveling all over the world or just spending more time with your kids. Um, that's the vision we have. And, you know, I think if the world, if, if it's just, we're using zoom and Slack 20 years from now, it's just a sad, it's a sad place. I don't want to live there. All right. So in addition to Kumo space, you also are a co-founder and a pre-seed seed fund in New York city called charge. So how did that come to fruition? Cause this was about maybe eight, nine years ago. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, before Kumo Space, I was just happily investing out of Charge. Charges, um, Charge Ventures. It's uh, New York City focused premium pre-seed venture capital. So, you know, we invest anywhere from two hundred fifty to a million dollars in companies just getting off the ground. Two brilliant gals in a uh, uh, downtown apartment is our our, our dream uh, founding you know founding team, and um, yeah, I had just been building that with my partner Chris Sabachi and. Thanos Pomper Dimitriou. Um, Thanos was my Fulbright advisor from a, a decade prior. And, uh, you know, we just felt like they're, you know, everyone talks about the glutton seed, um, you know, capital. Oh, there's so many seed investors. But if you actually go ask any first time entrepreneur, how, you know, how do they find their lead for their first round of capital? Let me tell you, they're not going to tell you there's too many seed investors because there's, <laughs> yeah, I see. Yeah, no, they're not going to say that at all. There's a, there's a gonna, shortage. <laughs> like, they're not going to say that, right? Because yeah, it's really easy to find a lot of people willing to kick in another 200k into a round being led by Sequoia or first round capital or right. Union Square Ventures. Yeah, no shortage of people that want to tag along with a fancy brand name. But if you want someone uh, who's going to plunk down and give you your first 500k and lead your first million dollar round and put that first, give you your literally you know, your first capital to get off the ground. Um, you know, there's not a lot of people who wanted to do that. And so I think that's where we try to differentiate, you know, we of course fund a lot of repeat founders and, you know, people I've known for, you know, 10, 20 years, but I think where we really differentiate ourselves is by focusing on first time founders who have, shown the grit and the resilience necessary to get the ball moving. You know, these people are building businesses. They've got products, they're in market, they're making revenue and they haven't, they figured out a way of doing it, doing it without being part of the, you know, good old white boys club. And, uh, you know, we love to put down and, and get behind folks, folks like that. So, uh, you know, if anyone's building a software company, uh, you know, in New York, but, you know, really anywhere in America, um, we'd love to hear, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, and it's a pretty extensive portfolio. You've been around for a while now. Um, so there's a lot of companies in there where you, you definitely recognize the company names and you've had some exits in there. So what's what's the best way to get on your radar as far as like a first meeting? Yeah, you know, you can just uh, shoot me an email, brett at charge.vc and uh, mention Venture Fizz. And uh, I will, I will, I'll definitely put that in the subject line and I will, I will I'll definitely get back to you. Okay, so once someone does land that first meeting, like what what are you trying to get out of that first meeting with an entrepreneur? I mean, fundamentally, I'm trying to learn and I'm trying to help. So, um, you know, if I can steer them the slightest bit more towards success, I think that's a successful meeting for me. Um, 
And, um, you know, I love, it's funny, everyone talks about building a billion dollar company, um, but it's surprisingly how few entrepreneurs actually believe that they're going to do it. Um, you know, at the end of the day, so actually rare. believing that you're going to build so a billion dollar company is kind of an insane thing, right? And, you know, most people aren't insane to their credit, but there are a few kind of crazy ones out there. And when you meet someone like that, you know, you're always trying to figure out, is this person a fraud or a genius? And sometimes the line is, is blurry as we've, uh, you know, seen, uh, we've seen, we've seen in some of our recent, recent things, but I, you know, I think it's really exciting to partner with people who are so passionate about what, you know, what they're doing. And, you know, for a pre-seed fund like ours, it's all about founder market fit, right? It's like, why do you have some unique, unique, you know, story? It doesn't, you know, oftentimes it is deep domain expertise gained from, uh, you know, uh, professional experience, but it also could be just some huge, you know, deep personal connection. You know, someone in your family had cancer and you're out to cure it, or you had just a terrible time, you know, renting a, you know, renting, renting a car or selling your house. Right. And then, you know, you want to make it a little better. Right. So, uh, you know, some deep personal connection, which has given you a unique insight to a problem that you are uniquely positioned to solve and, and, uh, you know, finding people like that and getting to spend time with them. is it's honestly just an honor. Uh, you know, you brought up a good point that I think, uh, there's been a lot of hard lessons learned from entrepreneurs around valuation, right? Like, you know, a couple of years ago, these lofty valuations are really starting to hurt entrepreneurs if they're going to raise more capital and you want to keep that like valuation progressing as a higher level, yet you have to do a down round or something like that. So what's your advice when it comes to that valuation conversation with entrepreneurs? I mean, look, I sit, I sit on both sides of the table. So I completely understand with entrepreneurs that are you know, trying to hold on to as much of their company as possible, right? That's that's their job. Um, I think the what you're ultimately doing is trying to hold on to as much of that company as possible times the outcome, right? You know, your expected value is, you know, your ownership, you know, ownership times the, out, you know, outcome times the probability of it happening, right? So you got to keep, in mind, not just your ownership, but rather, you know, the likelihood of, of success and the size of, of of that outcome, right? That's your kind of expected value, equa personal value equation. And, um, you know, sometimes it might be worth, you know, having a certain investor, like I see this all the time, you know, the best investors can sometimes, you know, they don't pay, have to pay the highest valuation. And, and that is because entrepreneurs realize that having Sequoia or first round actually improves your likelihood of success and the potential size of your outcome, right? And so it's better to under have a smaller piece of that pie. So I think it's I think it tends to be a um, a more junior entrepreneur that is too fixated on that. I'm not saying that it's you know very senior entrepreneurs are also protective of their equity, but I think not to the detriment of their success, um, which you know I think you sometimes see. So I think you know. Minimize dilution, get as much money as possible, but set yourself up in a way where you can, you know, keep steadily progressing and growing and you don't have to, you know, take the pain of it down. Around. All right. So in addition to everything we've talked about, you're an adjunct professor at Columbia. So, so what, what coursework are you teaching there? 
Yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I am, uh, again, very fortunate to work with uh, my co-instructor, Daniel Guetta, who's the head of the Data Analytics Institute at Columbia Business School. And um, we teach a course together called Analytics in Action, which is basically, a, you know, a master course in, in applied machine learning, um, where we work with uh, you know, a bunch of companies, we work with gigantic companies, you know, Citigroup, Moody's, L'Oreal, um, Zipcar, uh, down to, you know, fast growing startups. And uh, we basically run, you know, full-fledged data science projects for them with the teams of half MBAs, half engineers. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great experience, you know, get to really learn a lot about, um, you know, machine learning and uh, data science, applied data science. And, uh, you know, our companies get a bunch of great work done and our students get a lot of great experience and uh, a lot of job offers every year. So it tends to be a kind of win, win, win. And, uh, you know, again, if anyone's interested in, uh, has a company that, you know, needs help with their data and has a problem that, that needs to be solved, uh, we got a team for you. So uh, also feel free to reach out. All right. So earlier on in, in that previous company that we talked about, uh, sonar. So I talked about your postmortem with, you talked about, you know, false positives and false negatives. So, so how do you avoid those? Like, like, how do you use customer interviews for finding that right product market fit? Because you will talk to people and they'll tell you they like this feature and I'll pay for this and all these things yet you could go run and build it and, you know, not find that right strike zone. Look, I'm still trying to figure this out 10 years later, but I, I think that for um, consumer, there's a slightly different thing for consumer and enterprise. So I think what I've learned is that enterprise is very much about co-creation with your customers and you're, con you're co-creating, you're building what, you know, trying to figure out what they want and trying to put product to their words. Um, but you're selling it as you build it. So, you know, you're generally building ahead of the selling, you know, it's like, if we build this, you will buy it. Yes. Okay. We'll, we'll build. Whereas consumer tends to be more data driven, analytical, and about speed to production. So you just iterate and build as many things as possible and put them in front of people. And if people use them, that's great. And uh, if they don't, then you know it's not working rather than asking literally because, you know, consumer experience tends to be, you know, if I wanted to get there faster, they, you know, they would ask for a, a faster horse, right? Like, um, so yeah, that that's sort of my nuance I've learned in, in the past few years. I think consumer is just about speed to market and iteration and data. And then for enterprise, it's about, you know, thoughtfully designing and uh, with your, uh, with your customers. I would, in a, a blog post, um, you wrote something very interesting. It said, startups don't die when they run out of money. They die when their founders let go. So it can be hard being an entrepreneur to finally come to that point of conceding and letting the company go, but you've put so much blood, sweat and tears into it. And it's really hard and emotional. And, you know, we could just run up this hill again. So, so at what point, do you think it makes sense for that entrepreneur just to finally say, okay, it's time to move on to the next idea or do something else? I mean, that's such an intensely personal question that I think it depends on the individual, but um, it doesn't, it might not serve you to keep chasing the same idea, you know, in the sense that 
you know, you might have better ideas if you were given giving yourself the space to to let them come. You might learn something on a job that will help you start your next idea. You know, you might be able to start your next idea better if you have some capital in the bank that came from a few years of of working and you know building a balance personal balance sheet. So I think that you know people do things that are, quote unquote aren't right for them or good for them all the, all the time. Um, and sometimes they actually they know it and they choose to do it anyway. So uh, you know I would never begrudge a a founder who was still pushing as long as they're doing it in an, in an honest way. You know, I mean, I think sometimes people are just hanging around because they're afraid and they don't want to know what to do next, which I think is not a fair, you know, that's not your, that's not living up to your fiduciary duty. Um, but as long as, you know, you're making an honest fight and, you know, acting rationally, uh, then, you know, as a investor, I, I, you know, I would never begrudge you. I, I, you know, I want you to fight to the end. All right. Three apps you can't live without. Three apps I can't live without. Well, I mean, not to be, you know, banal, but I mean, it's probably uh, Spotify, um, Google, Spotify, Google Maps. And um, let me, I'll try to think of uh, one that, well, I don't know, Shazam, probably just because, again, I'm I'm really into music, so. If yeah, anyone has yeah. be, you know better ones, I uh, I'm 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 open. Yeah, no, Shazam! I still open that thing up periodically. It's great. I mean, it's just it's amazing. Uh, okay, well, what about a good like podcast or book recommendation for entrepreneurs? Yeah, I think um, my go-to uh, book recommendation is um, it's called Endurance, and it's the the Shackleton story of failed. Uh, voyage to the uh, South Pole across the South uh, South Pole, and um, it is my, you know, in case of emergency, break glass and read book uh, to to keep fighting um, books. So for any entrepreneur that's you know kind of in the in the pit right now, um, I would recommend uh, taking a read through that book. It'll, it'll you'll stop feeling sorry for yourself real fast. Yeah, no, I've uh, I've definitely heard. I haven't read the book yet. I have to put it on my short list because I've definitely heard amazing things about it. So, uh, okay, outside of work, what else do you like to, to do for fun? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I rediscovered surfing over um, the pandemic, and uh, I'm definitely you know not forgetting about it again. It's uh, I, I don't know my favorite thing to do on on the side. So cool. Well, Brett, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background story and journey and all the great work you're doing at Kumo Space and, of course, at Charge Ventures as well. Keith, thank you so much. That was such a lovely conversation and so well thought out. And uh, I am um, honored to be a guest. Thank you. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.